What a beautiful song. It reminds us of the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and what God has ordained. Amen. Daniel chapter 4 this morning. Please open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Let's ask the Lord's help once again. Father, as we have just sung, you have ordained for these people to be gathered in this room on this day. And God, we pray for your will to be accomplished through the preaching of your word. May you be glorified in this text. And Lord, as we look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar once again, as told to us by Daniel, that you would be faithful to have us Hear this message and obey you and worship you through it. That we would be faithful, God, to listen intently and to apply it to our lives. Help us now, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar had a second dream. It was just as weird as the first one. In this dream, he dreamed of a giant tree that could be seen as far as the eye could see. It was strong and tall and able to give shelter and food to all kinds of animals and people. But in this dream, we are told that an angel comes down from heaven and says, chop down that tree. And then Daniel gives the interpretation to the king, which is very afraid of what this means. Daniel tells him that King Nebuchadnezzar, you are represented in this dream by this big tree. You are high and mighty and think you're so special. However, God is commanding you to repent and to humble yourself. And if not, God will chop you down like that tree in your dream. And then you will go crazy. You will think you're a wild beast, eat grass like an ox, and be driven away from your kingdom until you realize that there is a God in heaven who rules and gives the kingdoms of this world to whom he wills. God made you king. God will remove you from being king. So therefore, O King Nebuchadnezzar, humble yourself or be humbled by God. But then even in this dream, God's mercy gives a hope and a promise to the king that although he would be chopped down, there would be a stump that remains. And from that stump, there is life. Praise God for his mercy, even in judgment. We'll continue with verse 28. After Daniel gives the king this interpretation, I'm sure you're just dying to know what happens next. Look at verse 28. All this, meaning the dream, came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He doesn't heed Daniel's warning or the warning of God. By his mercy to even give the king a dream. He does not humble himself, but yet continues to puff himself up. Look what he says. 
First of all, he goes walking out on the roof of his royal palace. And he's admiring the grandeur of the city of Babylon, his empire. And he looks at it from this kingly viewpoint. And Babylon, we're told, was a beautiful city. All sorts of huge buildings with ornate golden plated uh, walls and statues. And the beauty of the city just screamed majesty. And he's admiring it. And getting all the credit for it. Look what I have done. Perhaps from this king's viewpoint, there was in his view even the hanging gardens of Babylon, which you may have heard is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This beautiful, huge structure that looked like hanging gardens off in the distance. Look what I have done. This great and mighty Babylon, he's the king of the world. He built it by his power. For what? The glory of my majesty. Have you ever met someone so full of themselves like this? Remember that what God wanted him to know was that Nebuchadnezzar really hasn't accomplished anything. The position that Nebuchadnezzar had as the head of Babylon was from God. God put him there in a position of authority, like he does with all rulers and officials. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that if anyone has authority in this world, it's because God has given that authority. The riches that Nebuchadnezzar had accumulated, even by conquering other nations, had been by the decree and the permission of God. So the position that Nebuchadnezzar had was from God. All the he had acquired was from God. But full of pride, Nebuchadnezzar lists his achievements as being me, myself, and I. Look what I have done for the glory of my majesty. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, everything that we possess or have ever had in this life is not a result of our awesomeness. Sorry to burst your bubble. It's also a result of the providence of God accomplishing His holy purpose through you. Every achievement, ability, position, job, talent that you possess has been given to you by the decree of God, by His providence. And it's not for your glory. It's for His. And this is what separates those who know God and those who don't. Those who know God have known that we belong to God. All of my life, all of me, is God's. And everything I have is by His grace, not for my glory. The Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church in this beautiful hymn in chapter 1, which I know many of you have memorized. Colossians chapter 1, Paul breaks out into praise. And it's very likely that these four verses were a hymn of the early church. That's what many theologians speculate. And Paul includes it here as a, as a hymn that probably was sung. Beautiful poetry. He says, speaking of the Lord Jesus, and just listen to this language. He is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Everything you see in the universe, every atom exists for the glory of God. And for any creature or person to take that glory which was designed by God for himself and to use it for oneself is what R.C. Sproul once said is cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. Treason against the holy God of the universe. For the God who is the creator of all things created it through himself, the Lord Jesus, and for himself, for the glory of his name. He is before all things, Paul says. He's number one, right? We go through life, we kind of think that, right? You go to any sporting event and they have the, you know, the foam finger, you know, we're number one. We're, I mean, that's just a funny way to say it. But we live like that, don't we? We live like that, right? We, we take great pride in our accomplishments or the things that we love, right? You know, even when we're growing up as kids, my dad can beat up your dad, Right? I mean, think about that. I mean, my iPhone is better than your... Well, never mind. Um, (laughs) Oh, did that strike a nerve or something? Um, There's so much pride in there. But everything was created for the glory of God. And God is number one. God is before all things. He has created it. Thrones or dominions and rulers or authorities, Paul says. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. He is number one, not you. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we see this beautifully brought together in the person of the Lord Jesus. What the things that rightfully belong to God... These are the things that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to take for himself. That Babylon was built by him and for him and through him. And he's the king and he's before everyone. And he is preeminent. And this is the lesson that he will soon learn. So he's up on the roof, admiring the city. Look what I've done for me, myself, and I. What happens next? Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there was a voice that fell from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Amazing. While the words were still in his mouth saying these things, the angel comes down in the form of a voice basically saying, it's time to chop down that tree. Sharpen the axe. Let's go. There's two things I don't want to glance over that we must not miss in this passage. First of all, we must see the perfect 
patience of God. The perfect patience of God. Notice in verse 29 that it said 12 months have passed since Daniel interpreted the dream. 12 months a year. The perfect patience. Was this the first display of pride that Nebuchadnezzar had? No. It's not like he was good for 12 months and then all of a sudden he decides to take a stroll on the roof and say, what am I doing? This is all about me. This is how his heart operates all the time. And the fact that God, number one, even gave Nebuchadnezzar the first dream is by his mercy. The fact that he gives him a second dream is by his mercy and grace. And the fact that he doesn't even execute that the first moment that Nebuchadnezzar has pride is saying that our God is perfectly patient. Perfectly patient. He's not just perfectly patient with Nebuchadnezzar. He's perfectly patient with you and I as well. Think of your life before you came to know Christ. Think of what you and I truly deserve. You and I don't deserve another breath for our cosmic treason, let alone Nebuchadnezzar. But our God is perfectly patient. He's so good. Any warning that any sinner has from God is by the mercy of God. Every time a sinner hears the gospel and is commanded to repent of their sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is a result of perfect patience and the mercy of God. If God were not patient, all of us would be dead and in hell right now. And this is true of Nebuchadnezzar. But not only do we see the perfect patience of God, which his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, we also see the perfect wrath of God, don't we? When the time is right, God's patience has an expiration. In Nebuchadnezzar's time, it was 12 months from the interpretation of this dream, which we should never presume upon the mercy of God or his patience. For what God granted yesterday may not mean it will be given tomorrow. While the words were still in his mouth, he's not even done seeking the glory for himself. God interrupts and says, take out the axe, chop down the tree. Our God is perfectly patient, but perfectly wrathful and just in his judgments. Nebuchadnezzar had every chance in the world. And yet, he presumed upon the patience of God. Maybe some of you are in here without Christ. You're not a Christian and you know it. Maybe someone's drugged you here. Or some, maybe you're here just to impress somebody. You've heard the gospel from so many people over the course of your life. Do not presume on the kindness of God. We're all commanded to repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus to be saved. And nobody's ever promised another second. While the offer is given, while the plea is made, repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the good news that we preach. Don't presume on the perfect patience of God. For if you do, you will see the perfect wrath of God. And so it was so. Verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Exactly 
as it was said it would happen. And what was that? Verse 33. He was driven from among men. He left the castle, left his palace, was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox. Now, this doesn't mean that he became vegan. Okay? Or vegetarian. There's something going on here. Remember in the pre- earlier in chapter 4, we were told in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar told Daniel, it says that he would have the mind of a beast. Something is going inside his mind to change who he is, to make him want to eat grass like an ox and to have his body wet with the dew of heaven. And his hair grew as long as eagle feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. This is actually a rare documented mental disorder called boanthropy. If you really want to be freaked out, YouTube boanthropy. There are, it's a real rare mental disorder that people have that they think they're cattle and they crawl on all fours and eat grass. This is what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar. The judgment of God has fallen upon him and God has inflicted him with a mental disorder to think that he has eating grass and thinks that he's a beast. He goes from the high royal palace to sleeping on the ground, in the dirt. His hair grows extremely long. Tells you the amount of time he was in this condition. No haircuts. His nails were as long as claws. The image of Nebuchadnezzar no longer appears as a giant tree towering over the world giving shelter and protection. He is now the tree that has been chopped down, laying on the ground. A tree that's chopped down, what is it good for? It just decays, it dries up, unless you chop it up and use it for firewood. A tree that's chopped down is done. This is what's happened to him. He's the fallen tree, and he's been brought low. He's been humbled. His nails, his hair, his diet. He's crazy. Humility is a funny thing, isn't it? The wrath of God is not something to take lightly. He was to stay in this position for seven periods of time, we're told. And until he knows what the truth is. Now, whether that we said last week, it doesn't matter what that means, seven years or seven seasons. There's different opinions on that. Really, it doesn't matter to the text. All we know, it's long enough that all this hair and nails grew so long. What we do know and can confidently say is this. God was not going to shake him loose a second too soon. The perfect patience and wrath of God. Nebuchadnezzar was not going to escape this before God was done with him. Why? Because God is the king. And Nebuchadnezzar is now learning that he is subject to him. Period. 
But there's hope. Because in the dream, there was a stump that remained bound with um, iron and bronze. The imagery of metal and bronze says that this tree was kind of protected so that nothing else could affect the stump. It was encased in this metal. Even though God is judging Nebuchadnezzar, there is hope for Nebuchadnezzar because there's still a stump that's alive. Hopefully, once he gets his senses back, the stump will grow as it was intended to grow. Would there be an end to his humility? This is what the tree promises. And we get the story. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. At the end of the days, the seven periods of time, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and he gets his sanity back. One of the marks of humility that we see here and we see in our life is that instead of looking down on other people as being beneath you, you look up above. First thing we see Nebuchadnezzar do, I lifted my eyes to heaven. Why is he lifting his eyes to heaven? Because he knows who's up there. And he knows who's up there is over him. That he is the true king and he has the power and dominion more than he ever had. He's humbling himself. He knows now his proper place. He is not that guy. He is not that God. Instead of looking down on other people as being the God that he thought he was, he's looking to the true God. One of the marks of humility is instead of looking down on other people, you look to God. You look up to God and realize that you are not above anybody else. In fact, there is someone far above you. True humility is not attained. Listen to this. This is so crucial. True humility is not attained by comparing yourself to other people, but in comparing yourself to God. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's not looking at all the other kings in the world. He's not looking at all his palace officials or his people in his kingdom and saying, Boy, I'm even below them now. No. Which he is, really. Living like a beast, driven from among men, outside of society. He's not looking to other people and comparing himself and saying, oh, look how humbled I am. No, he's looking to God. He's looking to heaven and saying, I am nothing like that God. That's the same God who I saw rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm nothing like him. Same thing happens when someone becomes a Christian, when someone becomes saved. They stop comparing themselves to other people. You know, you've shared the gospel with someone and you ask someone, are are you a sinner? And they say, well, no. I mean, I haven't done anything that bad. What are they doing? They're starting to compare themselves to other people and their sins. Well, I've never killed anyone. I've never cheated on my wife. I've, I've, I'm a good person. Good in relation to who? You might be a better person, humanly speaking, than other people on this world. But when you stand before God at the great white throne judgment, 
you are not going to be compared to other people. You are going to be compared to the only standard that matters. And that is the holy God of the universe. He is the only standard that matters. True humility happens when someone gets saved, when someone becomes a Christian, they humble themselves to realize that I am a sinner who has fallen short of this glorious God. I have offended him. I have broken his law. I have committed treason against him. And now I am comparing myself to him because I stand accountable to him, not to anyone else, but to him. And I need to humble myself to realize that I'm a sinner who has fallen short and beg for mercy for this God because I stand. I stand at his mercy. Hmm. When you compare yourself to others, you might find yourself you're not that bad after all. I mean, who in here, humanly speaking, is as bad as Hitler? Probably no one. I don't know. Then we'd say, oh, okay, we're all good then. I mean, Hitler, that's, that's a bad guy. We're good. No. God's not going to judge you according to the evilest people on the world. He's going to judge you according to the standard bearer, the one who has come to live in righteousness, the one who has come obedient to the law of God, the one who has come to die on a cross for our sins. And if you have rejected that one, you have missed the mark and you will be held accountable as such. Hmm. This is very similar to what happens in a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18. You remember this story very well. Jesus tells a parable Verse 9 of chapter 18, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's this Pharisee. They go in. I'm not like other guys. I'm better than everyone else, God. I do this and I do that and I've accomplished that and I do this for you and I love you. These guys don't. And here's this tax collector who was seen as the greatest, one of the greatest sinners in that society and age because they were crooks, those tax collectors. They would overcharge the Jews the taxes and rob for themselves money and on top of what they were supposed to be paying Rome. Oh, the Jews hated the tax collectors. And this is why Jesus gives this example. You think you're okay because you're not a tax collector? When you answer to God, God's not judging you as if you're a tax collector. He's judging you as if you are against God. The tax collector goes in and humbles himself and says, God, I can't even look up to you. I'm so non-worthy, God. Help me, God. Be merciful to me. 
I think this is what Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to realize. When his reason returns to him, what does he do? He lifts up his eyes to heaven. He doesn't look within. That's a mantra of the new age world, right? Just look within for your purpose. Love yourself. No. Love God. That's how you truly love yourself. That's how you really find yourself. Is in God putting him first. So true humility, again, is not attained by comparing yourself to others. It's comparing yourself to God. And when you realize who God is, you know who you are. That everything you have from God, and sometimes we don't understand that until God takes it away. Maybe you've been there. Even then, we must realize that even the greatest of us in this world are powerless and not in control. Nebuchadnezzar is not done. He lifts his eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Three different words are used here for his attitude towards God now, right? Blessed, praised, honored. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and gives all due respect to God. Remember, this was once the guy who told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'd love to see your God save you from me. And now he's looking up saying, oh, you are the most high. And he blesses him, he praises him, and he honors this God whom he disdained before. He is now doing this because he knows that he is the true God. And look what he understands now about this true God, that he's worthy to be exalted and praised and blessed. What is it? For his dominion. That's his rule. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He finally gets it. He finally understands That humbling that God brought him through was for a purpose. What was it? Repentance. And I think what we're seeing here in Nebuchadnezzar is just that. We're seeing the fruits of repentance by him acknowledging from his heart what is true and what is right. This is what God wanted him to know. He thought that he was an everlasting king. And that his kingdom would never fade away. Which is why God gave him the dreams. Remember the first dream, the statue of all the different metals? He was the head of gold. But soon after the head of gold, there would be you know, other ones that follow. Silver and bronze and clay. And those are the other kingdoms that are coming. Nebuchadnezzar, after that dream, what does he do? He builds a giant statue just like the dream. But instead of making it all the different kingdoms that would fade away, he makes it all about him. He makes it all golden, like he will last forever. And this is why God says you are going to stay in this position until you realize that there is a God in heaven that gives kingdoms to men as he wills. Nebuchadnezzar, once his reason returns to him, now gets it. I'm not him. Look at me. I'm eating grass like a beast. On all fours, sleeping outside in the wilderness. Look at my fingernails. Look at my hair. I'm dirty. Wow. He understands that God rules forever. God reigns forever. 
God has always been on the throne and he's never giving it up. And nobody is ever going to replace God. Look at verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing compared to this God. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that not only is he in this position, but so is everyone in the world, that there is not another one that is greater than Nebuchadnezzar or greater than God. Who are we compared to God? That's what he's saying here. The once and great mighty Nebuchadnezzar is now saying, who are we? Who am I? Compared to God, we're nothing. God is holy and sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and he's righteous and he's glorious and he alone is worthy of praise. Who are we? We're dirt. We're dust. God made Adam from where we come from. From what? The dust of the ground. That's what the Hebrew word Adam means, by the way. It means dirt. It's a reminder who we are. From the dirt we come and to the dirt we go when we're done. True humility is not seen in comparing what you once had and no longer possess. True humility is seen in comparing yourself to the God who gave it to you, who took it away, and now makes you walk in humility so that you can conclude who is the true God. And he continues, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar says here, it is God alone who is sovereign. God alone does what he wants. And it's God alone that can't be stopped. Nobody can even say to God and rightfully accuse God or question God about his plan. See, this is the way Nebuchadnezzar lived his life. I do what I want. I say what I want. I buy what I want. I kill who I want. What does Nebuchadnezzar realize now? The guy who said all those things thinks he's a cow. The guy who commanded other people is now being commanded by God. Hmm. True humility is acknowledged when you understand that God's ultimate worth compared to us is nothing. We are so low and he is so high. There was a time that nobody dared question Nebuchadnezzar. There was a time in which Nebuchadnezzar realized that there was nothing he couldn't do. But now he realizes that only God can do that. Nobody can stop God. Look at me. God stopped me. (laughs) Nobody has the right to question God. I thought nobody had the right to question me. But look, I was wrong. Once he realizes this and confesses this, look at verse 36. At that same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. God left the stump. So Nebuchadnezzar can repent. Sometimes God chops down our lives to humble us where we have no other place to turn 
but him. Think of your life and his mercy, the places that he has brought you, the things that have happened to you. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And so what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He is restored. Everything that he had before is given back to him. He returns to being the king. And he gets back in power. And that's all we know. I wish there was chapter 5. is about Nebuchadnezzar and say, Nebuchadnezzar led the nation in repentance and revival. Doesn't say that. All we know is that God gave him back what he promised. Just like he said, I'm leaving the stump. Turn back to me. But remember, I said last week that chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, remember I said, this is the end of the story. It's kind of a weird way to start the story, right? Verses 1 through 3, it tells us what happened at the end, the conclusion. If you remember, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's only something he knows after going through what he just did. Chapter 4 gives a conclusion. The middle of 4 tells what happened. And then we get back to the conclusion of how he repented and turned back to God. And now in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's the point. That's the point of this story. Nebuchadnezzar serves as an example to us that if you walk in pride, God is able to humble. And as we said last week, there's only two options. Pride always ends the same way. It always ends in humility. You either humble yourself or you be humbled by God. Nebuchadnezzar chose the being humbled by God route. And it didn't work out well for him during those time. But in the end, the goodness of God led to repentance. And now he has given grace to someone as evil as Nebuchadnezzar. Which, by the way, if God can change the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, is, he anyone, is there anyone he we can't change? And you know of some hard people in your life, don't you? You know, some people who you've shared the gospel with again and again and again, and you're like, there's no hope for them. They're done. There's no hope for them. If they're still breathing, there's hope for them, friends. The perfect patience of God. Never give up. Never give up. Keep going. Keep preaching. Keep loving. Keep sharing until their dying day when the perfect wrath of God is executed. Nebuchadnezzar is such a proof for us that there is hope even for the most wicked people. That we ought to pray for our leaders and officials and all places of government and family members and friends and neighborhoods and all peoples. If God is able to humble such a prideful man as he, he can do it for anybody. Like James reminds us, but he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want the grace of God? You have to humble yourself. Realize you're not God. Realize you need a Savior. Realize you need, and everything you have is from Him. And in a minute, that could be taken away. Don't you walk through this life with a strut? Because you will soon be walking with a limp as a reminder of who is God and who is not. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful story of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, his repentance, and his restoration. Lord, we'd love to know more. We don't know any more than what's here. But we're grateful for the great lesson we can learn in this story through this man. Help us, God, know what it is in our lives we ought to do. For those of us who are walking with a strut because we're so full of ourselves, God, help us to humble ourselves, to bow the knee to King Jesus, to daily trust in Him. Father, for those who are without Christ, those who have rejected the gospel thus far, Lord, we are never giving up hope. Until their dying day, we will continue to preach and to love and to pray for your mercy to change their heart, for their, your grace to change their heart. Even though you chop down trees, you leave stumps because you are perfectly patient and wise and good. God, let us think the same. Draw sinners to repentance through true humility of acknowledging their sin, their accountability before you, and placing their hope and trust in the only one who can save and forgive, King Jesus. Our worth is not in what we own. All we have is from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song today that will remind us of our humility before God and that everything we have is from Him. My worth is not in what I own. Let's sing. <laughs>